a small book of announcements <clears throat> to remind everybody about. Okay? Men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting on Saturday morning, January 23rd. And starting the last time we met, which was back in November, I'm starting to do a study on, on, uh, we'll study each week on, each time we meet on biblical manhood. Also, there's going to be a ladies prayer meeting and lunch on Saturday, January. All right, glad we got that over with. <clears throat> ladies prayer meeting and lunch on January the 30th. Also, and, and this is pretty good. There's a Dallas seminary is offering this free course. It's pretty decent. I've watched the first couple of lessons. Mark Bailey's teaching it. Now, Mark taught for years in the Bible Exposition Department, which is the most sound department and traditionally Dallas department at Dallas. And he's the president of Dallas Seminary, and I've known Mark probably 30 years. Uh, there may be a few fine points here and there that, that I might question him on, but from what I've heard, he does a great job. It's good. It's free. Price is right, and you can sign up for it and listen to that if you're interested. Um, also, next week, where's Alan? Do we have a place for Tommy to stay next Saturday night? This coming Saturday, this coming Saturday night. No one's, we have to get that nailed down by tomorrow. Okay, I don't want to go out of town unless we have some place for Tommy to stay. Um, I, did you say we had somebody for the next week? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So need need. I think we're working working those details out. Okay. I'm leaving tomorrow, approximately three thirty, to head to Kiev, and I'll be teaching uh, covenants and dispensations. While I'm gone, Doug Karn and Rick King will be teaching. And I think they've got a, a good material. They're going to do a good job. They're they're both good communicators, and and this is just as I keep saying, congregation needs to support uh, new teachers, young guys. So give give them that ex- experience. Okay, one thing I forgot Sunday morning. Franklin and Marion's baby came on Saturday. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Nehemiah Naduku, and um, he was six pounds seven ounces. So born January the 2nd. So that is just tremendous. And then, uh, let me see. DBM is still looking for proofreading editors. And I think that's, that's it for the, for the announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone a chance to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord. Salvation is free, and once we trust in Christ as Savior, all sins are forgiven. But when we sin after we're saved, it does uh, break the rapport, the harmony with God, what was called fellowship and walking by the Spirit. And so when we confess our sin, which simply means to admit or to acknowledge our sin, to God the Father, then we're instantly uh, forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, again, we express our gratitude, our thanks to you, because you are the God who owns cattle on a thousand hills and once again, as we completed the last year, you provided uh, the resources we needed to pay all our bills and take care of all of our financial needs, and for that we are uh, extremely grateful. Now, Father, we pray that as we look at this next year that we may look at it as an opportunity to, to accelerate our own spiritual growth, that we might look at how we live and how we are devoting our time, that as As Paul says in Ephesians 5.17, we are to redeem the time. That means we need to make sure that we are putting our time and effort in that which counts for eternity, even though we have to work and we have to take care of a number of temporal responsibilities. uh, We have to make sure that those do not get in the way of our preparation for eternity. And, Father, we pray that as we continue to study your word, that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen us, encourage us, that we might be edified in our souls, that you might be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we should make our way through most of this chapter. This is one of those chapters that doesn't contain a prayer. It doesn't contain uh, a specific uh, teaching it is almost all narrative, and narrative you usually cover much more quickly when you're teaching through the Word because it's just describing what is taking place. And so uh, one of the things that we look at is what is going on in this section. I had an interesting question today that came in on the Internet, and somebody asked if, if there were any, any passages, verses in the Bible that you didn't, uh, or that, 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 what we might not really know a whole lot about, or might not, a lot of people may speculate and say a lot of things about it, but a, a lot's not there. And, and that's true. But the more we study something, the more we look at the vocabulary, come to understand the original languages, come to understand how these terms are used in other parts of the scripture, how that verse is used within the framework of Scripture, the more we understand that it may have a lot more significance. It may be, if you think about a jigsaw puzzle, it may be that one piece in the puzzle that doesn't really, it's not the showing the main, um, the main uh, thing that is depicted in the picture, but it, it pulls everything together. And that can be true for, for a lot of different verses. But one of the things that we learn in Scripture is that all Scripture 
is God breathed. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Not some scripture, not most scripture, not the scripture that seems relevant or significant to us, but all scripture is breathed out by God. And even those verses that just list uh, genealogical information just list names. Uh, once you start studying a lot of those verses. Uh, it it means something, even if you don't know who those individuals are, and we have a verse like that at the very beginning of this chapter, even if we don't have a lot of information about those people, there are certain things that we can learn from that verse that God has put that information there and seen to it that it is not only recorded for the Old Testament for Israel, but it's recorded for our benefit and it's recorded in the scripture for all the ages, for eternity. And so God has not just put something there because, well, he needed to fill a gap or something like that. It, it has a, a reason, even if we may not discern what that is right away, and it may take years, years to do that. And in a passage like First Samuel 9, it's a passage that moves us, transitions us from Israel without a king to Israel is at a, uh, having a king. Saul is going to be anointed the king of, of Israel of all 12 tribes, and that begins at the beginning of chapter 10, so that chapter 9 has 27 verses that build up to the point where Samuel will take out his flask of oil to anoint, uh, to anoint Saul. As we finished up with uh, Samuel 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we saw that the people were in rebellion uh, against God, not against Samuel or against Samuel's leadership, So they, but they used that as sort of a justification. But they were really, truly in rebellion against God, and they told Samuel they wanted to have a king. The key phrase is, like all the other people. They wanted to have a king like all the other nations and be like everybody else. I don't know about you when you were a kid. But my mother had this, this, these little sayings, something like, if everybody else had a wart on their nose, would you want one too? They were always very tacky illustrations, and the point was, why would you want to be like everybody else? And that was the exact problem that we have uh, with Israel, is they wanted to be like everybody else. They thought the grass was greener on the other side of the fence, but, and it is sometimes, but it still needs to be cut, mowed, and weeded. weeded. And, and no matter what it is, it either has to be painted, repainted, clean, cut, whatever it is, it's never perfect on the other side of the fence. And they wanted to have a king, and this was not going to be a king like God wanted. And so God is going to answer their prayers, and this is why I said, that I titled this, Be Careful What You Ask For. There's an, there's an old African proverb that goes something like this, that when the gods want to make, your miser- make you miserable, they answer your prayers. So God is going to give, take Israel through an extremely harsh lesson through Samuel. Sometimes God gives us the leaders that we want in order to show us what disastrous people they are. And that happens has happened many, many times throughout, uh, throughout history. So at the end of the last chapter, uh, the Lord tells Samuel, go ahead, give the people what they, what they want, a king like all the other nations, and we expect Samuel to go and select a king right away. But what we discover is that Samuel doesn't do that. When chapter 8 opens up, what we find in the course of the description is that Samuel had gone back home to Ramah. 
He is going about his priestly duties. He is fulfilling his responsibilities as a judge, a leader of Israel, and he's still waiting on the Lord for God to give him direction as to who this person will be that he will be, that will be anointed. And there's an important uh, lesson there in terms of God's timing that until God reveals to us or makes clear to us, usually through circumstances, remember God doesn't speak to us today like he did in the Old Testament. He speaks to us through his word, but he doesn't speak to us apart from his word. Uh, God is, is silent during these years, just as God was silent for the last 400 years of the period in the Old Testament before Jesus came. God has been silent since the close of the canon. The canon is enough, and we're to learn to trust the Scripture. We're to learn to trust what God has said, and and God is teaching us that we are not to be looking for uh, something else or something uh, something new. We have to wait on the Lord in his timing. This is what uh, we find uh, in uh, passages like uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. God's timing is going to be perfect, and it's not going to be your timing, uh, your timing or my timing. And so what we see here is a lesson in how Samuel goes about his day-to-day work, just as we should, waiting on the Lord to bring about the circumstances and the timing for the next step, not trying to necessarily uh, push things. As we look at the structure of Samuel, we've studied through the first seven chapters where the focus was on Samuel, who's the prophet, priest, and judge. And then from chapter 8 through the end of 1 Samuel, uh, we have the life of Saul. But there's basically two stages, the rise of Saul in chapters 8 through 15, and then the decline of Saul in chapters 16 through 31, which occurs at the same time as the rise of, of David, who will not become king until the beginning of, of first, uh, first Samuel. Now, this map, we'll look at it again in a minute, but uh, it's a little better map than the one I used last time. And this map focuses on the center of Israel. Okay, remember, this, this orients you geographically over here on the, on the west, you have the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, down here to the southeast, there's the, of uh, Jerusalem, that's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is located right here on the map, and it's identified by the old Canaanite name of Jebus. Because at the time of Saul, Jerusalem has not yet been conquered, and the Jebusites still live there. So we have Jebus, and then these, this is really a map showing the, the wars and the battles of Saul, and so just sort of ignore the, uh, uh, the lines and the movement. But what you see here is a lot of activity takes place up and down this, this green and yellow line, which basically follows those of you here who've been to Israel last year and the last time we went, we drove this highway up into the area that is known uh, today as the West Bank, but should be called Shomron or Samaria. And you leave uh, Jerusalem here and you drive north and you go right past uh, uh, Gibeah and Ramah, and you go up that highway by Bethel, which is off on the left, and I is on the right, and you go up past Shiloh and up to Shechem and on up uh, up to the north. 
So this is where most of the action takes place in the hill country of uh, in the hill country of Samaria. The towns we should be aware of. Jerusalem is here, just north of Jerusalem. I mean, this isn't very far. This is like saying, well, I, I, if, if you're familiar with the geography around here, I, I drove from from Westheimer and 610 at the Galleria, and I drove over to Memorial City. That's about the distance we're talking at that time from Jerusalem to uh, Gibeah. And Ramah is just a couple of miles or, or two or three miles past uh, Gibeah. So we have uh, Gibeah, uh, J- uh, Jerusalem to Gibeah is maybe seven miles. And according to, if this is to scale, then it's probably another six miles to Ramah. So you're, you're not very far from the, from the center of Jerusalem. And one of the things that you should observe here is Gibeah is Saul's hometown. And how far is Saul's, Saul's hometown from Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown? Not very far. So just keep, keep that in mind. Then you have key locations, um, something that's, oops. this is Gilgal. I did something and made half the word disappear, but that's Gilgal. It's going to be mentioned in the text. Mizpah over here, uh, up here Shiloh where the tabernacle had existed for 300 years before it was, was, uh, kept, destroyed probably by the Philistines after the ark was captured. Uh, at the Battle of, of uh, uh, Aphek. Okay, so what are we what are we focusing on? We're focusing on how the Lord is working in Israel to teach them a lesson, and He's going to select and anoint Saul to be the king of Israel. This is the first person God has had anointed as the king over Israel. Now He's not the first person the Israelites have crowned king. The first person the Israelites crowned king was the uh, son of, of, of Gideon, and his name was Abimelech. And that's always one of my fun little parts. I, I love reading the Hebrew in, in these old uh, Old Testament books because they're so filled with, with little puns and, and nuances. And Gideon comes along after he's defeated the Midianites and the people want to make him king, and he acts kind of... Humble, he says, "No, I'm not. I'm not going to be king." But then the next verse says that he had an ephod made, which is a priestly garment, and the people worshipped it. So he, you know, he he does really well one minute, and then he just blows it the next minute, introduces idolatry into the people. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of y'all have done really well spiritually one minute and blown it completely the next minute? I think that's pretty common. But that's what Gideon did. And then he had a son. Now, remember, the people wanted him to be king, and he said, no, 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 I'm not going to be king. So what did he name his son? He named his son Avimelech. And Avimelech means my father is king. Just a little hint there. So Avimelech becomes, uh, uh, lines up with a bunch of near-do-wells in Shechem, and they crown him to be king. But he's the first king crowned over Israel. I always like to use that as a trivia point. Um He's the first person crowned king of Israel, but he's not the first person that the Lord anointed or had crowned 
uh, king. So we're going to see in this section down through 1016, how the Lord selects and anoints Saul to be king over Israel. And the first section is this chapter where we see God directing Saul, or Samuel, to select Saul to be king over Israel. Now, one of the things that we see here is a comparison and contrast between Samuel and Saul. And the writer's doing that uh, specifically. I want you to put, hold your place there in 1 Samuel 9. And I want you to turn back four or five pages in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1 begins like this. Now there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of Zophim, we're going to see a similar word here in a minute, Zuth, okay? Same basic root. You can hear the similarity. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, or Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth. See, Zophim is a territorial name that derived from an ancestor whose name was Zuth, okay? An Ephraimite. Now, look how chapter 9 begins. There was, and it should be translated because the same thing in the, in the Hebrew. There was a certain man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorot, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. So they begin virtually the same way, and so the author wants us to see, a, make a comparison and contrast between Samuel and Saul. Both are introduced with extensive gene- genealogies going back about five generations. Both came from the same region of the country and rose from obscurity to national prominence. Both of them are unknown individuals. Their families are unknown. But notice they both come from the same area. They're seven miles down the road. Okay, Samuel's hometown. How many people in Israel know who Samuel is? Everybody. How many people in Israel know who Saul is? Nobody. Both had names etymologically linked to the same verb, uh, which means requested. So Samuel was requested of the Lord. And, and so Shmuel is etymologically related to the verb Shaul. You notice the S-H and the L. And Shaul means to ask or make a request. And Shaul is the one the people requested. So they both have names that ultimately connect to the same uh, verbal root. And both of them led Israel in battle against the Philistines, and both of them built altars to the Lord. So there's some similarities there. But there's also some important differences. In um, contrasting them, we see that Samuel is spiritually focused from childhood, and Saul is not. Saul is just spiritually dense. I know you don't know anybody like that, but I know some people like that. Maybe one or two in the congregation, but I won't say anything. Uh, Samuel is submitted to the Lord. He wants to serve the Lord from the time he enters into certain, when he's three or four years old. He's focused on submitting to the Lord, but Saul is not. Another difference, Samuel shows long-lasting humility. Saul starts off with a measure of humility but as he's elevated to a position of power, pride takes over. 
And fourth, Samuel is not necessarily appealing to the world. word. There's nothing said in the scripture about Samuel's physical appearance. But there is about Saul. He's physically attractive. He's tall. He is uh, handsome. Some of the translations translated the word tov that way. We'll look at that a little bit. Uh, so Saul is physically attractive. What's interesting is we live in a culture where tall is considered good. You look at somebody tall, we like tall leaders in, in, in America. But in Israel, the only, le- the only people the scriptures make an issue out of in terms of their height are people like Goliath and Og, the king of Bashan, and, and Saul. None of these do well. So the only people the Bible focuses on in terms of their physical height and appearance are, are not necessarily people who've succeeded, uh, succeeded or, or done well. So what we see at the very beginning, let's just look at the first couple of ch- verses. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorah, the son of Aphia, Benjamin, a mighty man of power, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upwards, he's taller than any of the people. Now, I want to know if anybody here reading that second verse keyed in on a particular word there. Anybody catch a particular word? It What? Choice. Choice. Way to go, Greg. That's right. That's our doctrine of the magnum bar. That is the same word. It doesn't, one translation actually translated, he was elect. He's not elect yet. He, uh, you know, it's choice. It's that idea of, of excellence, someone who looks good. In fact, uh, when you look at, we'll look at various translations, that's how they uh, translate it for, for the most part. Saul is described as someone who is materially well-to-do. He's physically impressive. He's able to inspire a following among the Israelites in these first uh, three or four chapters. And he's skilled in battle, and he's able to bring about, uh, about victory. But he comes from a tribe, the Benjamites, that are, that are spiritually depraved. In fact, Gibeah, Saul's hometown, is the scene of this event back in Judges chapter, I think it was 19 or 20, where this Levitical priest comes with his concubine. It's just like what happens back in it's Genesis 19, I think it's Judges 20. Back in, um, uh, uh, or maybe it's Judges, maybe they're the same. That's right, Judges 19, Genesis 19. When you Like Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, if you go back and listen to the study I did of that, the vocabulary, the similar vocabulary between Judges 19 and Genesis 19 and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is impressive. I mean, it's like a huge number of similar words. And the writer of Scripture is saying, see what's happening in the heart of Israel, in an Israelite town, is just the same thing that the, those Sodomites in Sodom and Gomorrah did. They are now just as depraved as the Canaanites were. And this is Saul's hometown. So we hear Saul is from Gibeah. It's like, wait a minute. This, this is not a good thing. This, this is, this is not a great thing. So that would not uh, sound good for a lot of people. So he comes from a tribe 
that has demonstrated a spiritual disobedience and rebellion, in fact brought about a civil war that almost destroyed the tribe of Benjamin. And, and Saul is depicted in this passage as being pastorally incompetent. He can't find the donkeys. He, he, and, and leaders historically are viewed as being, being shepherds. He's, he's incompetent pastorally, spiritually ignorant, and he's, he's a little bit irrational at, at times. Now, in Judges 19 to 21, we see the last mention of, uh, the last mention of, of the Benjamites when they're almost, uh, the tribe is almost eradicated. And so what happens here in the right way the scripture is written is that by bringing these points out, it raises questions about is Saul really going to be a, a, a good leader? And in, in storytelling, uh, later on, people would know the story, and they immediately pick up on the fact that that this this uh, genealogy here is designed to 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 raise questions. Just like if you go to the opera, as soon as the bad guy comes out on the scene, or just before he comes out on the scene, you hear the bass notes, and that just foreshadows what's about to happen. And that's what this is. This is kind of the bass note, and you go, oh, the bad guy, the the villain. Uh, of this part of the story is about to come on come on the scene. We also know that back in Genesis 49:10 that God had prophesied that the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin, Judah. So God's intent is to raise up a king and a dynasty that would be from the tribe of of, of Judah. So all of this is 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 brought out and emphasized uh, in this particular section, we see the introduction of Saul's family here, that his father's name is Kish, his grandfather's name is Abiel, his great-grandfather's name is Zeror. In fact, it's a little easier here. I, I, I put him in line here. So, so Afia is the head of the clan. He's the one they're tracing back to. And Afia is described, as we see in verse uh, verse 1, Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Now, the phrase in the Hebrew there is Gabor Hayil. Now, in the early part of the scripture, a Gabor is a usually translated uh, a mighty warrior. A Gabor Hayil is a mighty warrior. Some of the ways this, is, this phrase has been translated in Judges 11.1, 1, it's um, translated mighty warrior. In 1 Samuel 16.18, it's translated a brave man. Um, in 1 Kings 11.28, it's translated a man of standing. Um, 2 Kings 5.1, it's translated a valiant soldier. And 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Chronicles 12.29, it's translated a brave warrior. So this is the idea. It is originally a military term that describes someone who has, uh, conquered territory, demonstrated his bravery and his courage on the field of battle. But as time goes on, what happens to a lot of military men? Same thing happened then as happened in our culture. They become successful in other areas so that the idiom, uh, a man of valor, expands from just somebody who's demonstrated success and ability and strength on the battlefield to someone who has become successful uh, in life, someone who has become wealthy, someone who has become strong. And so the idea is that, that Saul descends in a line uh, of men who have great social standing, 
uh, and great uh, uh, wealth. The family, we learn, owns servants, has servants, has a number of servants. They have donkeys, they have oxen, and so it indicates that he's from a, a, a family that has position, that has power, uh, but he is not one of those who's in the front uh, front of the picture. Okay, in verse 2, we're told he had a choice and handsome son. This is Kish. Had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. And there was not a more handsome person. Now, the word handsome repeated there is the same word tov. Tov is the word that means basically good. But it has a range of meanings, so it can also describe uh, describes someone's uh, appearance. And so there are different translations of this. Uh, the NKJV calls it choice and handsome. The NET views it as a, these two verbs as a hindiatus, which I don't agree with, calling it a handsome man. And the Tanakh does the same thing, the Hebrew trans, uh, Jewish translation of the Old Testament, an excellent man. So this is, the idea of choice here is excellent or, se- or select, not the idea of someone who's chosen. Uh, that's always, ever since Calvin, that's the knee-jerk response is to always translate these terms as elect. This has nothing to do with salvation or even God's destiny at this point. Just saying this is a, a, a good-looking man whose head and shoulders uh, upward is taller than anybody else. Every time I read this, I always think of Sam Houston because Sam Houston was that way. He was about 6'4", and he stood head and shoulders above uh, his his uh, comrades and he he and people at that generation like George Washington who was also six foot two uh, and stood head and shoulders among most people is people like Sam Adams uh, Sam Adams was five six five five or five six uh, Monroe I, it was either Monroe or Madison uh, let me see here uh, the shortest in, in the nineteenth century I think was uh, was was Mon- was Madison, and he was five four. Last week, I made the comment when I was talking about this that that they, they're looking on the outside. They're looking on the fact that this is a tall, good-looking man, and so therefore we can follow him. If he looks good on the outside, must be good on the inside. We want to judge a book by its cover. And I made the com- comment last time as a warning to a lot lot of you that we have to be careful when we look at politics today. Uh, I was I made some co- made comments about the fact that that one of the candidates is pretty short, not because I'm against a candidate. Somebody came back to me and said, you know, some people think you don't like him. No, he's one of the only one I do like. Um, but some people point out that 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 in the history since the beginning of the 20th century, especially with the rise of film and television and pictures, that Americans pick. Like they pick their pick presidents, like they pick their cereal. If it's got a good cover, and it's attractive, and it sounds good superficially, we're sold, and that's who we go with. And that's the wrong thing. We don't look very much deeper into the issue. In the U.S., in Western culture, tall is supposed to be a sign of strong character and good leadership. And as I pointed out last time. Uh, and I'm expanding on this a little bit, in in, uh, electoral politics, generally speaking, the shorter of the two candidates has always lost. And and we look back over the the 20th century, there there were only two 
presidents that were the shortest two were were Jimmy Carter, who's five nine and a half, and Harry Truman, who was five nine. Now remember, Harry Truman ascended to the presidency because Franklin Roosevelt died. Franklin Roosevelt was six two. Uh, Hume, uh, Truman got got elected to the vice presidency on on um, on Roosevelt's co- coattail. So he, when uh, Roosevelt died, Truman become became president. He only got uh, reelected the one time. Jimmy Carter probably never would have gotten reelected, uh, despite his high IQ. He's a fool, just like Roman says that many professed to be wise and became fools. And Carter's <clears throat> it was a horrible president, but he only got in because the country was reacting against Republicans because because of Watergate. But we've had a history of, uh, even in the 19th century, a lot of tall presidents, but only two shorter ones. And in this election, we've got an interesting thing. Uh, Trump says he's 6'2 and weighs 198 pounds. That's on his website. I've looked at the, the, the Trump. If he's 6'2, he weighs 240 pounds. Okay, that that's not his accurate weight. And some people say he's only six, but he's tall. Uh, Rubio is 5'10", and Ted Cruz is 5'8". But, you know, probably they're going up against Hillary, who's 5'7", but she's a woman. So it changes the whole dynamic uh, because it's, it's not going to be two men, one taller, one shorter. So it, it's up to the Lord. Now, the most constitutional candidate that we've got is Ted Cruz. I mean, nobody understands the Constitution better than Ted Cruz. I mean, this is a guy who, when he was about 13 years old, memorized the Constitution and went around the state with a debate team writing the Constitution out on a, on, on a, on a, uh, on a board, word for word, week after week after week throughout the year. I mean, this guy knows the Constitution better than anybody else. But Americans don't want a president who knows the Constitution. If we did, we wouldn't have elected Barack Obama. We probably wouldn't have elected George Bush or George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, we probably wouldn't have elected half the presidents we've elected since the end of World War One. We wouldn't have elected Woodrow Wilson. Every president we've had has moved us further and further away from the founders who understood the principles of liberty and freedom. And if we want liberty and freedom, we've got to operate on the rules of the game. It, can you imagine what it would have been like if on uh, last Thursday night at the Cotton Bowl, if the referees treated the rules of, of, of the uh, NCAA the same way the Supreme Court of this country treats the Constitution? Alabama would not have won. They wouldn't have even scored. Michigan State would have won. So that, that's what, what we've done in this country is we no longer care about who's right. We care about who looks good. We care about who's got the best PR team. And that's a shame because the most qualified guy that we've had running for president probably the last 35 or 40 years is, is Ted Cruz. Anyhow, this is what happens is that we look on the outside. That's what Israel did. And God is slam-dunking them for looking on the superficial. That's what he did in, in chapter 8. He said, these people aren't rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me and my leadership. So let's give them what they want, and it will be a disaster. And that's often what God does with us. He gives us what we want, and it becomes uh, becomes a disaster. Now, the problem that we've got coming up in this next election is that people 
are not going to vote for the person who's the most intelligent. They're not going to vote for the person who understands the law of the land the best. They're, they're, they're going to vote. Uh, they're going to vote for whatever self-centered rationale that they have. Uh, remember, the majority of postmodern pagans who don't know a clue about the Bible, American history, or the Constitution are always going to vote for the wrong person most of the time. And that's the history of the, about the last 75 or 80 or 100 years of, of American history. What I'm warning you about is don't get your hopes up. Fight hard, work hard, volunteer for the person you think is the best one. But I know most of you, and I'm just warning you, don't put your hopes in the American electorate. Put your hope in God. Do not put your hope in men of flesh. Okay. Now, moving on, what happens in verse 3 is that Saul's got a little problem. Some of his father's she-asses are lost. And that's the Hebrew word. The donkeys of Kish, it's a feminine noun. The donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Now, it's not all of them. It indicates some of them. And Kish sent his son on a search and rescue mission to find the donkeys. And he says, take one of the servants with you and arise, go, and look for the donkeys. So we see there that he has several servants. Now, the servant that he takes with with him is a pretty well-informed servant, and it's very likely that this is the chief uh, of the servant. This is probably the the administrator, the steward over all that the family of Kish uh, owns. But we learn a couple of things that are, that's important here. First of all, in the ancient world, leaders are often compared to shepherds. Often you, you have some cultures that referred to their kings as shepherd as shepherd kings. In fact, the Bible uses a shepherd analogy uh, many times to relate to leadership. For example, in Isaiah 56, 11, and in Jeremiah 10, 21, and in Jeremiah 23, 1 through 4. Uh, if you think through the Bible, some of the most significant leaders in Israel history were shepherds. They were nomads, uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, and they're depicted as skillful shepherds, especially uh, Jacob and Moses. But Saul is pictured here in a very, very negative light. The donkeys are, have strayed off, the she-asses have strayed off, and he can't find his asses with both hands and the help of a servant. So they're just wandering loose. And he's pictured here as inept. He, inept. He can't take care of these, these, these large, uh, large animals. And we're told that he goes through the mountains of Ephraim, Ephraim in the Hebrew, and through the land of Shalisha. Now these are probably like like Zoph, who we talked about in reference to Elkanah in First Samuel one, and. Um, and it, with reference to uh, Aphia, the Benjamite, these were probably one of the ancestors who originally staked out this territory uh, following the, the, the conquest. And so we don't know exactly where these territories uh, were located. But they went through the area of Shalisha and the area of Shalim, and these would be areas that are to the north of Gibeah and Ramah. So he's, tra- he's out here uh, traveling and walking around uh, for several days. We read that, that um, he passed through the land of Benjamin, but they didn't find him. When they came to the land of Zuf, 
Now, we read about the land of Zuf. That's going to be near Ramah. Go back to our map here. That's going to be near Ramah because Zuf, the Zophites, were ancestors of of Samuel. So that tells us we're we're close to the area of Ramah. And it's been about three days. He hadn't been able to find the donkeys. So he says, let us return lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. So he searched this large area for three days. Uh, with his servant, you could maybe, uh, uh, if it's a slave, it's not a slave like we think of slaves, it would be a slave, uh, like an indentured servant, but he's probably, he's more likely a servant who's taking care of all the fam, all of the family. And he is, uh, traveling through, uh, with Saul. Now this guy is not named, but he is fairly sharp. He's probably the head servant. The way this is written in the Hebrews could certainly be understood that way. Uh, Not just one from the servants, but it could be, uh, it uses the word echad, which is the word that means first. It could mean the first of the servants. And so this would indicate that he is the, the main one. Later on, we learned that the house of Saul had a servant named Ziva who had 15 sons, and he's described in 2 Samuel 19 and following, and he was extremely wealthy. So this could be this, that same, same individual. But he's out there. Here's the Hebrew word, a, a, a tone for the she-ass or the she-donkey. I'm not making this up. That's how it's translated. And I put uh, documentation there, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament and the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. Then in verse 8, let me see, in verse uh, 6, 6 as we come along, uh, they seek guidance uh, as to what's, what's going on. And the, notice the spiritual insight of the servant. Saul is not insightful. Here Saul grew up in Gibeah, seven miles from Ramah. Who's the most significant person in Israel? Samuel. Saul grows up seven miles away, and he doesn't have a clue who Samuel is or that he's from Ramah seven miles down the road. He is really spiritually dense. See, we, we read this uh, after he said, let's go home. Uh, his servant said, look, uh, there's this city that's Ramah, a man of God. He's an honorable man. All that he says will surely come to pass. Let's go there. Uh, perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. And then Saul says to him, they have this little con- con- uh, conversation, and it shows that Saul's not too bright e- either about spiritual things. He thinks that... Um, he, he thinks that he has to pay off the man of God to get, get any help. And so they have this conversation. A couple of things that we ought to note here. First of all, Saul's getting more and more frustrated and discouraged. So he just wants to give up and quit. He's not going to keep going until he finds the donkeys. That's going to say something about his, his character and his ability to get, uh, to get the job done. Second thing, that we see is that Saul's servant shows a lot more spiritual insight and knowledge than his master. We see, as I pointed out already, Saul is profoundly ignorant of Samuel and where Samuel lives. Um, we're told in, in 1 Samuel 3.20 and in 1 Samuel 4.1 that Samuel was known to all Israel, except poor old Saul, who's spiritually dense. Um, <clears throat> Saul never thinks about 
divine guidance, but it's his servant who says, we ought to go to the man of God and get some help. So he's spiritually focused, whereas Saul has no clue about asking God for help in the crisis. And then we see that Saul's ignorant of how to approach the man of God and thinks he needs to pay him in order to get guidance. So Saul's assumption is that spiritual insight is the result of paying for it. We see that in verse 7. It says, look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? Now, there's a sense of positive there. At least he's thinking in terms of, you know, we shouldn't just expect it to be free. But he doesn't understand how things work, that he can just go to the prophet and ask him for guidance. Verse 8, the servants, the servant volunteers. We see the generosity of the servant. He says he's got a fourth of a shekel of silver, uh, which isn't a whole lot. Um, you know, that's, he's got 10 or 20 bucks. There's a little tip for the, for the prophet, but that's about it. And then in verse 9, we come to an interesting parenthetical verse. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke like this. Come, let us go to the seer. Okay? So this indicates that by the time the book of Samuel is written, the idiom had changed. They no longer referred to the prophet as a seer, but as a prophet. And so this is just a little note indicating, and again, it confirms the, histor- uh, the, the historical uh, accuracy and the historical value of, uh, of Samuel. Then we come to the next set of verses in um, verses 11 to 14, where we see that, that God leads Saul to the seer. So we see the invisible hand of God behind the scenes. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? We trust in the Lord, and he will direct our paths. God, Samuel's trust in the Lord. Saul's not. But God is still directing the paths, and he's going to bring Saul uh, to Samuel. So we're told in verse 11. Now, I want you to notice something here. Notice the verbs and notice the action. Up to this point, things have just sort of gone along at a general pace, about 30 miles an hour. But notice what happens here. They, they are walking up the hill to the city, and there's some young girls coming in a group, and it's, which tells us it's evening. This is when they normally go and draw water for the evening meal. There's going, we're going to find out in a few minutes there's going to be a sacrifice. This would be the evening sacrifice. And so this was one of the few times when in their culture that a strange stranger, a strange man could talk and uh, have conversation with, with the girls. And so they asked, well, is the seer here? And they said, yes, there he is just ahead of you. Hurry now. For today he came to this city because there's a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. Today he came. He wasn't here. If you got here yesterday, he wouldn't be here. If you got here tomorrow, he'd be gone. Today, he's here. Think that was a coincidence? That's the perfect timing of God. Today on the high place. Then verse 13, they said, as soon as you come into the city, notice how the pace is picked up. As soon as you come into the city, you'll surely find him before he goes to the high place. You don't want to waste time because if he gets up there, he's going to be busy with the sacrifice. So, so they're, they're saying you, you need to find him before he goes to the high place for the people won't eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, hurry, for about this time you will 
you will find him. So there's this sense. There he is. You know, the, the words that are used there. There he is. Just now. Hurry. He just came for today. Find him before he goes to the high place. Go. So the pace picks up a lot. And so Saul and his servant go uh, looking for uh, looking for Samuel. And as they are walking up, they're pointed out that he's just in front of them. Think that was a coincidence? See, when, when God is in things, the, the circumstances are going to work out. He will arrange the circumstances providentially, and you don't have to look for them. Samuel is not navel-gazing, looking for the will of God. You've heard me teach on the will of God before. If you want to know God's will, you read the Scripture and do what God says to do. Go about your daily business, as Saul went about his, and God is going to direct your paths. He's not playing some sort of shell game where you have to guess which half of the walnut shell the pea is under, and that pea would represent the will of God. What you have to do is do what God says to do, and he will direct your paths. So... Uh, they, they come to Samuel, and Samuel is headed up towards the high place. Now, what's interesting is the Hebrew word for high place is Bama. Bama. Bama is the Hebrew cognate for the Greek word Bema. The word, in, and, and even today, you go into a synagogue, What's, what's the dais called? What's the platform called? It's called a bema. It's a raised platform. In the ancient world, you'd go uh, to, a, to the Colosseum to view the uh, athletic context, and the judges were all sitting in a, a distinct set of, of benches that was called the bema. And this word originally goes back to the Hebrew. It's a high place, and that's all that it means is an elevated place. So this was a sacred site that, that uh, and an altar that, Samuel had built there because Shiloh, where the tabernacle had been, was destroyed by the Philistines just about 20 or 30 years before. So he had built this altar here, and he would regularly uh, serve as the priest there and offer sacrifices. Remember, he's a Levitical priest, and he would uh, pronounce a blessing. If he was in town, he would pronounce a blessing over the evening uh, sacrifices. The other thing that we see here is eating is associated with worship. Eating is often part of fellowship with God. We have the Lord's table in the church age and fellowship with man. Worshipers eat in the Old Testament. They would participate in the eating of both peace offerings and fellowship offerings. Same kind of thing we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, when Elkanah's family would take offerings to Shiloh, and then they would eat there. They would partake of those uh, peace and fellowship offerings. So then we come to the next section in verses 15 down through 27, which is, describes how Saul meets Samuel and how God reveals his selection to Saul, which is in verses 15 through 17. Now, this is what we see in 1 Samuel 9.15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying. Now, you know, some people who don't understand Scripture and don't teach Scripture verse by verse will go in and they'll jerk this verse out of context and say, if you want to know God's will, you have to listen to him. He'll speak in your ear. That's garbage. 
God didn't speak in the ear of anybody in Israel this time except Samuel. It's a unique and distinct function for the leader of Israel who is a prophet and a priest and a king, and a judge, rather. He doesn't do that for everybody else. This idea that God speaks to us today, other than his word, is mysticism. And mysticism is the modus operandi of the pagan. That's what the pagans did in the ancient world. The unbelievers, that's not what believers did. Believers looked to the Torah, the instruction of God. That's how God spoke, either through Torah or through the prophets. Once the canon is completed and God has given us all that information, nothing new is added. So this is a unique situation. God spoke to Samuel. It's audible information. And the day before, he's speaking to him and says, tomorrow about this time... I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Notice how precise it is. God doesn't speak in generalities. Yet a lot of these people you hear today, you watch these televangelists, you listen to these preachers, and you listen to what God they say God says to them, and it's pretty general. It's never as precise as what you have in Scripture. About this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. And the word for anoint is the Hebrew word mashach, the verb mashach, which is in the noun form is mashiach, meaning the anointed one, the Messiah. That's where we get that term. So the kings and the priests were anointed ones. That means they were appointed to a specific role and a specific task. And he's appointed to be the commander over my people. I want you to notice here that you have five uses of the phrase, my people. This emphasizes that even though there's going to be a human leadership shift from Samuel to a king, the people are God's people. The leader of Israel is an under-shepherd and is not, the the king does not be, uh, the people do not become the king's people. It says, you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people. Here's the use of the word save that doesn't talk about getting into heaven. It's temporal deliverance from the Philistines. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. One of the roles of the, of the royal Mashiach, the royal Messiah, is to deliver people from their enemies. And this is what's going to happen in a couple of verses, in a couple of chapters, in chapter 11. One of the first things that Saul does is he goes and rescues uh, the Israelites at Jabesh Gilead from the, from the siege by Nahash the Ammonite. That's the job of the executive branch. The job of the president, the job of a king is to do two things. Anything else is ungodly and unrighteous. He is to protect the people from foreign enemies and to protect the people from criminals in the country. That's it, folks. In fact, if you read the original Constitution and understand the emphasis of our founding fathers, they saw the primary power in this country. Who is it that has real power in any business? Who really controls the business? It's whoever controls the money. What do we say whenever we think that there's corruption going on? Follow the money. We think that criminal activity took place. What do we do? Look for the money trail. Because money, money talks. Okay? So when we look at how our government was structured in the Constitution, who controls the money? According to the Constitution, it's Congress. 
president can't, should not be allowed to spend one dime unless the people say it's okay. And the Congress is the people's house. It's the House of Representatives that originates spending bills. And we, we've got a clean house. We've got to get rid of every single congressman who, who's allowed a president to initiate spending and to spend without congressional. That's illegal. We can't, a, a country cannot survive if the leaders are operating outside of the law. And we've created not only a ruling class, but because of the way they just wink at the Constitution, they're just as bad as what you had all through the Old Testament with all of these kings who, who just flaunted Torah. They ignored what God said, just like people today ignore what, what, what the Constitution says. And it's the same problem. It's the problem of arrogance. And the only solution is going to be interference from God. And that's never fun for a nation when God starts inter- interfering. So they are, uh, the Mashiach is to save his people. That's part of the, the job of the president is to give his national security ex- from external enemies and internal enemies. To save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So God is responding, and he's going to deliver the Philistines. And both uh, Samuel and Saul fought the Philistines. Then in verse 17 we read, So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Here's the Lord talking in his ear, whispering in Samuel's ear again, audible. If you'd had a little MP3 recorder, you could have held it up right next to Samuel's ear, and you could have recorded the whisper of God. It was objective. It's not inside his head. It's outside. He's speaking to his ear. There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. This is not the word we would expect for reign. This is the word atzer, which means he will restrain my people. See, that's what 1 Samuel 8 said. He's going to raise the taxes. He's going to build the bureaucracy. We've got a government where almost 50% of the people get a government paycheck. That is horrible. That is self-destruction. See, that, that restrains people because you have to tax everybody else to pay the salaries of those 50% that are getting a government check. And, and you know, you, you got half the people working to support the other half. That can't work. That's going to fall apart sooner or later. This word means to restrain, to close up, to retrain, to restrain, uh, retain, excuse me, shut, withhold, refrain, stay, or detain. It's a negative word. It's never used positively. And even though and the King James translated it shall reign, it should be this one shall restrain my people. He's going to cause problems, but he's going to, he's the one I've chosen. So God is indicating already that they're going to learn a negative lesson here. So Saul came up to, to Samuel. He said, please tell me. He doesn't have a clue who's, who he's talking to. He says, where's the seer's house? And Samuel said, uh, introduce himself. I'm the seer. Go up to the high place with me. You'll eat with me. Remember, the, the, the young girls had already told him that after the sacrifice, uh, there would be a group that would eat separate, separately and that would um, uh, that would be honored. And that's this group. And this was typical. What we're going to see here is this meal that takes place is a meal with Samuel where he is going to give the best meat, the best food to Saul and who are these other dignitaries that are there? 
Let me suggest that they are the leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, even though they're not identified as such. And Samuel is laying the groundwork because he's about to anoint Saul to be uh, to be the king. And so he says, I'm going to go up. You'll eat with me today. Tomorrow I'll let you go, and we'll tell you all that's in your heart. But as for your donkeys, don't worry about them. They've been, they've been found. So as they go up, they prepare to... Uh, they prepare to eat, and they prepare to uh, to have this uh, particular fellowship. Now, what we see here that's really interesting is as they come together to dine, um, they represent something that happened typically in the ancient world. Uh, they That is, you would give the largest plate of food and the best cuts of meat to the person who is the guest of honor. He would get... Uh, the most food and the highest quality food. This is indicated also in a number of passages. This food is one that had a lot of fat in it. We talk about low fat diet. Well, this was not a high. This was not a low fat diet. Look at look look at some of the passages in scripture. I just pointed out a few, and I've never figured out the emphasis on the fat. Jay Collins and I've had conversations about this. I've had conversations with Randy Price and others. Why is did they value the fat? And I haven't figured out why that's important, but they did. God says you, in Exodus 29:22, you shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the internal fat, uh, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh. The right thigh was valued. That goes to the priest. Exodus 29:27, you'll consecrate the breast of the sacrifice as a wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering that is for Aaron and his sons. That's going to be the right thigh. So I think that the thigh given to Saul here is going to be the left thigh. Uh, Leviticus 7:32, also the right thigh you shall give to the priest. So, but but it's it's this fatty part that is considered to be the delicacy. I don't have time to talk about the time we were sitting in a at a um, dinner in Kazakhstan, and it was a goat's head on the on the platter, and we were offered, the oldest person was to get the honor of eating the eyeballs. And they offered that to me, and I said, no, 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 George Meisinger is two decades older than me. Well, not, I exaggerate, he's a decade and a half. But he he was so gracious, he said to the hostess, she said, well, you like them so much, I would hate to take that away from you so you enjoy those eyeballs. And she did. So different cultures value different things. So they they ate. And then what we find as we come down to the last um, the last couple of verses, that when they had come down from the high place in the city, verse 25, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They they and the weather's good, especially in 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 the summer or in the spring when it's warm, they would conduct their business on the roof outside. Where do we see this in Scripture? We see this in Scripture in John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and they're sitting on the roof. It's where it's cool. It's not hot, stuffy inside the house, place where they meet. So they're they're, uh, meeting on top of the house, and then the next day they arose early, verse 26, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house. He probably slept out there because it was cooler. On the top of the house saying, get up that I may send you on your way. Saul arose and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. We'll stop there. Verse 27, then we start getting into the 
actual anointing of Saul, and we'll begin there when I return from Kiev in three weeks. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. Above all, when we talk about sacrifice, we know that all sacrifices point to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, and that we have eternal salvation simply by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, Father, we ask that you'd uh, help us to recognize from our study that, that often what we think we need and often what we ask for may not be the best, and often we operate on pride and arrogance looking at things on the outside and not on the heart as you do. We pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment, and especially in this upcoming election cycle that we might pick uh, men and women to serve and lead this country who are truly humble, who are truly dependent upon you, and truly understand the issues of good integrity and leadership and how to follow the constitution of this country along with your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.